Welcome back to the Word Encounter, episode 184. We'll be picking things up in the book of Matthew, chapter 14. So without further ado, let's get started. And it says in chapter 1, uh, uh, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 1, John the Baptist beheaded. At this time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist. This is what Herod thought. This is John the Baptist because he heard the mirac- miraculous things that Jesus was doing. And he says, he has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 3, for Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, uh, his brother Philip's wife. See, so Philip, Philip's wife and Herod had been cavorting, right? And so <laughs> this was kind of scandalous. And it says in verse 4, since John had been telling him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So John was saying, look, dude. You, you may be the governor here and whatnot, but you, you, you can't do this. This is not right. And so uh, Herod wanted to kill him. He says he feared the crowd, uh, but he didn't because he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. And so he wanted to get rid of John because John was, telling, was calling out his sin. See, he was calling out his sin. He wanted to get rid of him. <clears throat> and so then what happened after this, so uh, Herod has a birthday, right? He has a birthday celebration. And he has all these people coming in, dignitaries and whatnot. And so Herodias is there. Herodias has a daughter. And so she comes out and starts performing for the crowd and, and pleasing everybody. And so, uh, and so Herod feeling good, he says, well, what he was so pleased with the dance. He's like, what do you want? You know, I just, I'll give you anything you want. <laughs> so Herodias' daughter says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Whoa. But see, Herod, he wasn't down with this, but he had all of these people in his company, right? He had all these, all these guests and whatnot. So he, they heard him say anything you want. They heard the response from the daughter, so he had no choice. He painted himself in the corner. The lesson here is watch what you say. You see, he was feeling good. The wine was flowing. He was feeling great. Whatever you want. So she says, give me John the Baptist's head on the platter. Something that he does not want to do because he fears he fears John. He thinks John is a man of the Lord, which he is. So it says in verse 10, so he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. This is evil. This is pure evil. Her mother puts the daughter up to ask him to, to telling Herod to give me John the Baptist's head on the platter. They bring it to her on a platter. Then the daughter takes the head. Can you imagine somebody's head on the platter and give, presents it to her mother? Then his disciples came after this happened. Then John's disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. <clears throat> then it says, uh, feeding the 5,000. Jesus heard about it. He withdrew. He heard about what had happened to John. He withdrew from there by boat to a, a remote place to be alone. Jesus retreats a lot to be alone in his prayer closet, if you will. And, and I think there's a, there's a lesson here with regard to how we are to, to live. You know, sometimes we need that solitude with the Lord in order to get clarity. We need to kill all the surrounding noises and we need to go somewhere and, 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 and present ourselves to God and whatnot and listen, not just talk, just to listen with ears to hear. What is the Lord telling me? Lord, what, what should I be doing in this situation? You know, what, just just meditate on his word and just listen. It says when he went ashore, um, 
Let's see, let me back up. It says, uh, when the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and compassion on them and healed their sick. We'll see that this is a consistent thing where Jesus goes, a crowd gathers, and he heals the sick. And then it says, um, when evening came, the, the disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it is already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus' response, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. <laughs> Disciples say, but we only have five loaves and two fish. They're essentially, they're saying, we only have enough for ourselves. We can't feed 5,000 people, Jesus. Jesus said, bring, uh, bring them here to me. Bring the fish and the bread to me. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. It says in verse 20, everyone ate and was satisfied. So we know that he didn't just take these little itty bitty pieces of bread and fish so that he could spread it out. It says everybody ate and was satisfied. So the food was being multiplied. You know, I don't know how that looked. I don't know how that worked. But the food was being multiplied as they gave it away. You know, another principle here, a lot of times, you know, as we give things away according to uh, we're, uh, as we're instructed, you know, as we you know, uh, contribute to the poor and somehow our baskets get refilled and we continue to give it away, they continue to get refilled. A lot of times when we hold on to stuff, things just start to dissipate and decline. <clears throat> Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full um, of leftover pieces. Now, those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, they only counted, you know, according to Jewish culture and whatnot, they only counted the men. And so there were 5,000 men, but they had wives and they had, had children. So we can kind of guess it was somewhere actually between 10 and 15,000 people, somewhere around there. It says walking on the water in verse 22 it says immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And so he told the disciples, leave, I'm going to stay here, take care of business here. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Again, we see Jesus retreating by himself in order to commune with the Lord. And it says well into the night he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came towards them on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Now think about this. If you had been one of the disciples and you were on this boat and the boat is rocking and rolling as you're trying to get to the other side of the sea, and then it's early in the morning and you look up and you see this person walking on water, what would you think? I think it was, I was having a dream. I think that, you know, I'm not awake yet or something. But if I was sure that I was awake, I don't know what I would think, but I do think I would have a degree of fear in me. And so it says that they were terrified. And then, um, and then verse 27, it says, immediately Jesus spoke to them, have courage. It is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, P Peter answered him, Command me to come, command me to come to you on the water. So Peter speaks out. Peter is, is very impulsive, right? And so he sees this. He says, don't be afraid. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, you know, command me to come out to you. And so Jesus complied. In verse 29, he said, 
come. The, the, the simplest command that we find in the Bible, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water, and he came towards Jesus. So Peter got out of, uh, out of the boat. His eyes were fixed on Jesus, and he was walking on that water, walking right towards Jesus. But then something happened. It says in verse 30, but when he saw the strength of the wind, in other words, when he got his eyes off of Jesus, Okay, he became afraid and then he began he began to sink. He got his eyes off Jesus and that's when he started to sink. That's when he started to succumb to emotions. And then he cried out, Lord, save me. (laughs) Verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand so we can see that Peter probably got pretty close to God. He got out of the boat and was walking because Jesus reached out to save him. And so Peter got out. He kept his eyes fixed on Jesus. He was walking, 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 walking. And as soon as he got near Jesus, he took his eyes off of Jesus and started to sink. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is a question I believe that gets asked of us all the time. Why did you doubt? And we can see that, uh, that Peter doubted, started to doubt, because he got his eyes off of Jesus, because he saw the surrounding circumstances. And then his mind took over. He got afraid because of the surrounding circumstances, because he was no longer gazing on Jesus. And that's why he started to doubt. When we enter circumstances in our lives, Things are looking difficult. Where do we look? Do we stay gazed on Jesus? Or do we look at the surrounding circumstances and thusly giving them power over our mind, emotions, feelings, actions? What do we do? Do we keep our eyes fixed or do we move them? Verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. And so we have seen here that the disciples have been traveling with Jesus for a long time, right? They've been seeing um, uh, miraculous healings. Uh, they've been you know, witnessing miraculous feedings. They've been seeing all kinds of miracles, right? And so, but it says here, there's, there's, still, there's still this ounce of doubt in them because they say, truly, you are the son of God when they see the wind cease. Miraculous healings in verse 35, when the men of that place recognize him. So they get to the other side and then the crowds gather. And it says, when the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought to him all who were sick. So obviously his reputation had preceded him, right? So they recognized Jesus and said, oh, he's the healer. Let's go get all the sickly people. So that's what they did. Verse 36, they begged him, um, they begged him that they might not only touch the end of his right. They begged him that they might only touch the end of his robe, and as many as touched it were healed. And so let's examine this. And so they begged him, just let us touch your robe. You see, in other words, this was their belief that if I touch your robe, then I will be healed. And that is what has happened. That is what happened. They, t- uh, they touched the robe and they were healed. Because that's where their belief was. They said, look, we realize you're the Messiah. We realize you're the healer. All we have to do is touch your robe. Because that's where their faith was. Mm. 
And so uh, we see that, that Jesus is always willing. Because sometimes, you know, I, I think, I don't, I don't know. So a lot of times I'll say, Lord willing, because I, I I'm not sure of the will of God in a particular situation. But we can see here by evidence that his will is that his people be healed. See? And so sometimes, you know, we hear somebody getting sick or we're sick or whatever, and we pray and nothing happens. Sometimes people die and we don't understand. I don't, I don't understand it either. I don't get it either. Okay. I don't know. Sometimes people get healed and sometimes they don't. Why is that? Lord knows. I don't. I have no idea. Let's go on to chapter 15. It says the tradition of the elders. Verse 1. Then Jesus was approached by the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem who asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. So apparently the disciples would get to the, plate, get to the table and just start eating, and they didn't wash their hands. There was a ceremonial washing of hands that, um, you know, that Jewish tradition required, I guess. And so we see here, Jesus answered them, Why do you break God's commandment? Because of your tradition. Right? Now, I believe we can use the word tradition and we can also use the word culture. Why do you break God's commandment? Because of your culture. I'm an African-American and we have a lot of cultural elements in our culture. We have a lot of subculture under the dominant culture. Some of those things, in my opinion, violate the commandments of the Lord, violate God's will. And so all cultures have these elements that are questionable with regard to whether or not they violate God's commandments, God will, God's will. And some of them aren't questionable. Some of them outright do. Okay, they promote idolatry or, or whatever. And so the question to you is, when you come face to face with those things, what do you do? Do you succumb to the dominant culture? and participate in these things? Or do you refrain? Do you excuse yourself because you said, no, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. See, I'm not going to say I put the Lord first in my life, yet succumb to the pressures of the culture or tradition. What are you going to do? <clears throat> what are you going to do? So Jesus is asking the Pharisees, why do you break God's commandment? Because of your tradition. It's a, you, you know, so he's, they're trying to call him out because the disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. And he, he's turning around. He said, well, why do you do that? And so I'm, I'm pretty sure the Pharisees are thinking, well, what are you talking about? So Jesus goes on to answer that question. For God said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. Verse 5, but you say, whoever tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might receive from me is a gift committed to the temple. And so he's telling Pharisees, you tell your people that whatever uh, uh, might benefit your parents in their old age uh, for their comfort and well-being, you know, give that, give those resources, whatever you think about, to the temple. You see, instead of going to your parents, give it to the temple. See, because if you give it to the temple, it's the same as if you gave it to your father or mother. So this is what the Pharisees are teaching the people. And then um, he says, whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. He does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. And so you've, you're teaching a tradition. Instead of taking care of your parents, give those resources over to the temple and you'll be cool with God. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not right. 
you know? And then he says, hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips. Uh-oh. But their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. Here's the key. Teaching as doctrines, human commands. And so what he's saying here is that you are teaching people that these are commands from God, but they're human doctrines. This is coming from you. This isn't coming from me. This is coming from you, but you're teaching the people as if they're coming from me. This is so critically, critically important in my opinion, because I believe I've heard it. I've seen, I've heard and I've seen a lot of word come from pulpits presented as if it was from God when they are the opinions of man. And so you have to know about what's in the word to be able to distinguish the two because people can say things very convincingly. And so if they say something convincing, convincingly such that it sounds uh, that it's coming from the throne room from heaven, but it's actually coming from their opinion, you need to know that. You see, the word says that God will deal with those people, but you need to know so that you don't get led astray. It says defilement from, uh, is from within. Verse 10, summoning the crowd, he told them, listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And so, well, let me just go on. Verse 12, then the, the, uh, then the, disciples, uh, then the disciples came up and told him, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard you say that? See, so Jesus is coming at, you know, the washing of the hands. He's, he's also, you know, some of the Levitical eating laws he's referencing here. Okay. He says, it's not what goes into the mouth. That's not what defiles a person. Then Jesus replied, replied, every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. He's telling his disciples, leave them, leave the Pharisees alone for they are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into the pit. So Jesus is telling the disciples, leave the Pharisees and Sadducees alone. They're blind. And the people they're instructing are blind because of them. Here's the key. You need to know whether or not you are following somebody who's blind. Because the word says here that both the blind teacher and the blind student will fall into the pit. See, so if you don't know that the person you're following is blind, then you're subject to being blind and both of you will fall into the pit. So you have to know enough with regard to what is in the word to protect yourself and your family from those that would lead you astray and lead you into the pit of hell. So you don't get a pass. You don't get to say, well, I didn't, I didn't know. So-and-so taught me this. You don't get that luxury. The word is putting the onus on you. Verse 15, then Peter said, explain this parable to us. And Jesus said, do you still lack understanding? <laughs> Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. What you eat, what you put in your mouth is not what defiles you, Jesus is saying. He's saying, what comes out of this? That's what defiles you. Because what comes out of this comes out of the mouth. 
It's not what goes in, it's what comes out. It's not the food or stuff that goes in, it's the words that come out. The words that come out reflect what's in here, what's in the heart. Then it says in verse 19, For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander, and so on. So Jesus is saying that from the heart, out of the overflow of the heart come these things, these evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and whatnot. See? And then from that, things come out of our mouth. These are the things that defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Next session says, a gentle mother's faith. Verse 22, um, just then a Canaanite woman, okay, a Canaanite woman, a non-Jew, from that region, uh, from that region came and kept crying out. This is important. She came and kept crying out. In other words, she was persistent. She kept crying out. She would not let go. What did she cry out? Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Since Jesus did not say a word to her, his disciples approached him and urged him, sent her away because she is crying out after us. And so the disciples tried to get Jesus to ignore her because of her persistence in crying out. But Jesus replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he, he is replying to the woman. She's saying, help me, Lord, help me. And he's saying, I was only sent to the lost house of Israel. You're not a Jew. But she came, knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. That did not dissuade her. She still went forward. This is a rough response. Jesus answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. He's essentially calling her a dog. He's saying, you know, you're, 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 not, you're not a part of my children. It's not right. But her response, yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Verse 28, Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. Now, how many of us would have been offended by Jesus' response? I would have been, I would have been totally offended. I maybe would have been so offended I would have turned away and walked away. And then my child be tormented and died or whatever. You know, my pride would have gotten in front of me. That's not what this woman did. She knew who she was talking to. And I believe Jesus was testing her to see what she really believed. Healing many people. Verse 30, large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he healed them. Again, everybody that came, he healed. So the crowd was amazed when they saw um, those unable to speak talking. Uh, when they, well, so the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak talking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they gave glory to the God of Israel. So what was the crowd's response when they witnessed all these things? They just didn't say, oh, okay, great. They gave glory to God. They gave glory to God. You know, when you <laughs> witness miraculous situations, when you see that the Lord has delivered you from situations, what is your initial response? Are you just glad it's over? Or do you give glory to God? Do you recognize the hand of God that has been on you in that situation. 
feeding of the 4,000. Jesus called to his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they uh, already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry, otherwise they might collapse on the way. The disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in this des uh, desolate place to feed such a crowd? Now remember, th this, this response to me is kind of interesting because they've already fed 5,000. The disciples have already witnessed the multiplication of food, but they, it seems not to be sinking in. And so then Jesus says, uh, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they said, and a few uh, small fish, essentially the same that they had before. <clears throat> Whoops. Yes. And it says, uh, Jesus took, he took the seven loaves and the fish, gave thanks, broke them, uh, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They, they did the same thing last time, but apparently it didn't sink in with the disciples that they did this. And it says, and they all ate and were satisfied. So again, we're not talking about just little crumbs that went to everybody. Everybody ate and they were full. It says, they collected the leftover pieces, seven large basketfuls. Now there were 4,000 men who had eaten besides women and children. So there are 4,000 here, so probably between eight and 12,000 people altogether, 4,000 men with their wives and children, and probably about, like I said, eight to 12,000, who knows? <sighs> Jesus is awesome. Jesus is awesome, awesome, awesome. And in his awesomeness, comes the, the everlasting invitation. Romans 10 again. The message is near you in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. So this is Paul talking, you know, to the Romans. This is the message that is there for you. All you have to do is make a decision. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, see, a lot of people say Jesus is the Savior, but Jesus is Lord. That means he's Lord of your life. That means you, you pattern your life after him. <clears throat> Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. The only qualifier there is that you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. That's a sincere confession and a sincere belief, not just empty words. It says, one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. It's available to everybody, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Confession of the mouth, belief in the heart will be saved. Let that be you if you haven't already done so. With that, we're done for today. We'll see you tomorrow in episode 185, where we'll pick things up in chapter 16 of Matthew. All right? So everybody stay safe. Be blessed. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Bye-bye now.